Hey there, Duke fans, and welcome to episode 287 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. It is Sunday, February 28th, 2021, and February is ending on a sour note for the Blue Devils. We will recap the devastating loss to Louisville last night. We will preview what is now, what always was, a must-win game against Georgia Tech, and we will review the COVID contingencies for the NCAA tournament, which, as I remind you, is less than three weeks away. Before we get into all that, Donald Wine here, the host for this show. I got my peoples with me, Sam Klein and Jason Evans. First, Sam, how are you this morning? Good. I was a few nights ago on a Zoom call hosted by the Duke Club of D.C., and I didn't see Donald there. So I... I'm I'm not sure what's going on, man. See, it's been a very busy week uh, in the soccer world for me. So uh, I literally was on two other Zoom calls at the same time as that one. That one just had to get a pass. I heard it was great, though. It was it was excellent. It was about a, a new book that's out about uh, the history of of uh, black students at Duke. It was it was fascinating. Yeah. And I, speaking of podcasts, though, Donald, I also saw that you have another new podcast. I have another new podcast. Yes, it is a soccer podcast dealing with North American soccer. Uh, basically, we pick a country every single episode and we talk about that country's soccer. So the first episode, it's called World of CONCACAF. Uh, and if, sorry, if you're into soccer, I operate now two soccer podcasts in addition to this basketball one. Uh, but it's been fun uh, so far. We, we did Barbados. So if you want to learn about Barbados, check that out. Uh, but I will bring in Jason. Jason is the co-host of this podcast, Jason, how is it in Atlanta right now? Uh, fine and dandy. Uh, you know, I, I feel like I'm talking about the weather way too much lately, but uh, yesterday was almost 70. Today's going to be mid-70s. Uh, I am biking a lot and very much enjoying the nice weather. Spring has sprung in the South. That is good. That is good. It is, it is definitely spring here. I guess it would be, they would call it spring here in uh, Texas right now. Uh, but there was, we'll, we'll We'll talk about the weather later. Uh, we always start off with the weather, but we have to get into the basketball. The, the, winter, the winter of our discontent was last night. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And last night, Duke had their final game in Cameron for the season against Louisville. It was senior night. I, I say that in air quotes for Jordan Goldwire and Mike Buckmeyer. It was a game where Duke was cold throughout the first half. They started to heat up in the second half, and they got back into the game, had a chance to win it close to the end, but eventually... It went to overtime where the Cardinals outlasted the Blue Devils. 80 to 73 is the final score. Uh, There's a lot to take from this game. I will start with the headlines. Jason, what do you got as a headline for this game? Uh, I say heroic hurt, not enough, as Duke's postseason chances take a big hit. Uh, Matthew Hurt was amazing in this game, as we all know. He did not get enough help. Absolutely. Uh, I think you're leading into uh, something similar that I had. Sam, before I get to mine, what do you have? I also went for a a attempt at a Matthew Hurt pun. I went for a losing F Hurt for Duke. Oh, that's actually very clever. Very, very clever. I tried. Yeah, very clever. Mine is Hurt's Herculean effort goes wasted and lost to Louisville. So I got alliteration. I think we all tied in Matthew Hurt. And that leads into the good. We, we always start with the good. And Sam, I will go to you. I, I don't know what good you were going to begin with, but I, we're going to start with Matthew Hurt since we all commented on that. I think you have to start with Matthew Hurt in this game. If, you're, if Duke makes one more free throw or shot of any kind in this game we are on here this morning or possibly even last night talking about Matthew Hurt's incredible performance against Louisville his uh, career high 37 points on 21 shots he was he was everywhere last night for Duke and honestly not overwhelming from three just two for six from three which I think is maybe sort of underselling how skillful he is because he, we know that he can, he can really bomb it from three and can give you three or four threes in a game. If he's, if he's really focused on that. But last night it was, it was mid range. It was up close to the basket. It was putbacks. It was using the backboard. I, I don't know how many times we have to talk about how advanced his offensive game is, but what another outstanding performance for Matthew hurt last night and you got to be so excited about his development this year and and as we've talked about maybe this means that he is going to leave because <laughs> how could you how could you possibly become a better offensive player you know with with Matthew Hurts like size and build than he is right now in college so i think we have to start there yeah sam and the one thing i will note about matthew hurt is that 
in the first half, he probably had three or four jumpers that were considered, there were basically three pointers, but were considered two because his foot was on the line. So uh, that two for six is kind of a misnomer because he definitely hit a lot of shots that ended up being considered twos because he had a toe in the line. If he brings his toe back an inch, he's his, his percentage from three point is way better than it was last night. There's the flaw in his game is that yeah. he is that he steps on the line too often. And <laughs> one of those one of those moments last night where he manages to get behind the line and Duke wins the game mm-hmm. because they, as you mentioned, they went to overtime. So it's it's one missing point in a lot of different places. And by the way, before I let Jason say all the same stuff again, as I just said, Matthew Hurt last night, also much better on defense, I feel like. There's been a, a fair amount of development for him on the defensive end. And Jason is now is now looking angrily at me, so I'm going to let him talk about Matt Hurt's you, defense. You, so I knew, <laughs> I knew that you were going to talk all about the offense, and I was like, no problem. You can talk about something else about Matthew Hurt's game because I thought he really battled on defense. He contested shots in ways I haven't really seen from him that much this year. He was, he was really fighting hard for rebounds. Goodness knows we needed that, and I'm going to talk more about that later on. But yeah, I thought his defense really stepped up. And uh, I'm not going to echo everything Sam said. It, it, it's all obvious. As far as folks, I, here's what you can do. Pretend like you just fast forwarded three minutes and I spent three minutes talking about how great Matthew Hurt was in this game last night. So that'll save us all some time. Um, I, I really do think that Sam is right, that he uh, he's done with this level of basketball. Um, he will be moving on to the NBA after this season. I don't know if it's as a first round or a second round draft pick, but he is simply, uh, there's simply nothing more that he can do at the college level. He needs to get stronger um, in the NBA, but I think that the NBA is going to help him do that more than staying another year in college. I think we need to resign ourselves that uh, not only did we uh, see senior night last night, but, but we saw the last of Matthew Hurt playing in Cameron as well. And what a way to go out. And the other thing I lament, you know, Sam has said, you know, Duke gets one more point. We find one more way to win this game in regulation. Uh, not only do we get the victory, but I think Matthew Hurt wins ACC player of the year because had we gotten that key win, that what everyone in the ACC would have paid attention to it. It shuffles the standings in a significant way. It, it pushes Duke toward both the tournament and higher up in the ACC standings. For us to have done that in a game where Matthew Hurt scores nearly 40 points, I think would have cemented him as the ACC player of the year. I'm not saying he's not going to win it. He still very much has a chance at it, but he would have, he could have won it last night if he'd gotten a little more help from his teammates and Duke had gotten one more point in regulation. The one thing I will say about Matthew Hurt that you guys didn't is that Matthew Hurt, really decided that the ball would like whenever he had the ball, it didn't matter. He was going to score. And the other team knew it. Louisville knew that there was points whenever he got the ball, he was going to shoot. There was times where, where we were passing the ball around and it got to Matthew Hurt. Matthew Hurt was like, you know what? This is the time where I'm going to go black hole offense. And it was fine because the entire, everyone in the gym knew that he was going to have the ball and that he was going to shoot. And he still was able to get his points. I think that is, speaking to how the elite level of his game last night, that he was able to do anything that he wanted, basically. And the only trip that he had, again, like we said, is his toe was a little bit longer last night than it normally is because some of those, you know, threes that he was, that he was shooting turned into twos. I, I, I want to get into this more when we get to the bad. Uh, The one thing to say about Matthew Hurt's game, and I don't know that it's his fault. I'm not, I'm not privy enough to the way Duke is is communicating on the floor and things like that to say this is Matthew Hurt's fault. Duke went away from Matthew Hurt, the final four minutes of regulation and the entire overtime. Now, I'm going to talk more about that in the bad, but Donald, I think that everything we're saying about Matthew Hurt's game, the final nine minutes of play, last four minutes of regulation, five minutes of overtime, is completely different from the previous, what is it, 36 minutes of the game where Matthew Hurt was dominant because... And again, whether this is Matthew Hurt getting tired or something else, or whether it's just happenstance, maybe it's Louisville making some adjustments. The final nine minutes of play in that game, Matthew Hurt was much, 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 much less of a factor than he was in the first 36, which is one reason why Duke did not, not one reason. This is probably the main reason why Duke didn't win the game. Yeah. And, and again, we'll talk about it, but I don't know if it's, it it might have something to do with the fact that he's not the point guard. So he has to kind of, get the ball from someone else. And it's not like other guys, if a point guard is hot point guard can just take it and go. Uh, but I, I think when it, when it comes to Matthew hurt, he has to always command the ball from someone. And if the ball doesn't get to him, then 
he doesn't get the ball, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. I know that Sam has other guys that we, we should highlight. Uh, and Sam, why don't you take what other good that can come out of this game that we have? I think it's not showing up in a huge way in the box score, although he almost has a double double last night, but Wendell Moore has progressed in, in a lot of key sort of understated ways. The last few weeks, I think at the beginning of the season, we maybe expected him to be more of a, of a, star than he has turned into this year. And he's become, I think, more of the forward glue guy type of player this year where he's getting rebounds, he's playing defense, he's getting steals. He makes a lot of a lot of mop-up plays. Like there's there's not a lot of offense being run for Wendell Moore. That's not really his game, but he's able to make a lot of baskets on on cleanups and broken plays. And we've seen a tremendous amount of development from him just in, in all those sort of intangible categories the last few weeks another guy who i think you know last year there was like vague talk maybe wendell moore decides to to try his luck in the nba he's clearly very athletic and and has a sense for the basketball even if he doesn't have highly developed nba ready skills this year he came back and it was like oh maybe he maybe he plays well enough for that i don't think he's he's heading in that direction i don't think he's leaving to to go to the nba he doesn't have an nba ready like clear skill. He's not a clear NBA rebounder or passer or defender or shooter, any of that yet, but he is developing into a, into a key player for Duke. And if he's back next season, I expect him to be a, a very important role player for a blue devil squad where he'll, he'll still play 30 plus minutes a game, but he won't be the star that the, the freshmen coming in next year are likely are more likely to be stars. Mark Williams is honestly more likely to be a star than Wendell Moore is. And, and maybe some of the, the guards on this team are more likely to be a star, but he's the guy who's going to hold it together. So I, I, I think that his play last night demonstrated a lot of that development. And I'm really proud to see the, the last few weeks for Wendell Moore. Uh, he is a classic Swiss army knife. Um, you know, what do you need? You can pull it out and he's got it in his arsenal. Um, a great defender. He was second on the team in scoring last night. He was second on the team in assists. He led the team in rebounds. Uh, it, it, you know, late in the contest, I talked to him earlier and I, I believe me, I'm going to talk a lot more when we get to the bad uh, about the fact that, uh, you know, Duke sort of went away from Matthew Hurt. That was because the, the guy who, the only guy who was really attacking was Wendell Moore. He was getting to the free throw line um, when, when the rest of Duke's team seemed sort of unwilling, I thought Wendell Moore was the guy who had the will. Uh, and uh, really, he and Matthew Hurt are the only guys that I felt had really Mark Williams to a lesser extent. Those are the guys who had good games. Um, uh, you know, if uh, our, our sophomore class <laughs> brought the winning effort last night, unfortunately, our freshman class did not. I want to use that to kind of segue to the bad and Jason, I'm going to go back to you because I want you to start with this. There's a lot that we can take from this game, but I think there's one aspect of this game that I think was severely lacking. I think you agree. Uh, I mean, if by aspect, you mean guards, our guard play was atrocious. That's that's so I, I think that's as bad a game as we've seen from Jordan Goldwire. I think that's as bad a game as we've seen from DJ Stewart. Uh, Jeremy Roach is a little tougher. Roach has been very up and down this year. It was a terrible, but make no mistake, terrible game from Jeremy Roach, but Jeremy Roach has had some games um, that are on this level. But I, I thought DJ Stewart and Jordan Goldwire, this was their worst game. And look, I, I want to I start with this. I, I hate calling guys out by name like this. I really, this is something I'm reluctant to do on this podcast. You don't have to do this, <laughs> but... <laughs> I don't have to do it, but on the other hand, I kind of do because all of us saw it. Look, I've communicated with other Duke fan friends about this game via email and the such and text message. Everyone's in agreement. So I'm saying what everyone else is saying here. Our guards were terrible in this game. They were terrible. Our three guards shot three of 21. They combined to have nine turnovers and only score 12 points. They did a terrible job. I mentioned this earlier, of finding Matt Hurt with 357 left and Duke down three points. Matthew Hurt took a three-pointer. With 256 left in the game, he got fouled and took a couple free throws. Other than that, he does nothing in the final four minutes. We never found him on offense. We never uh, – even, even the, the, two, the, the two free throws he took were, were off a play, off, a, off an offensive rebound. It wasn't us finding him 
in the half court offense. It wasn't us looking for Matthew Hurt. It was a play, you know, sort of a scramble kind of play, and he got fouled. Now, there, there are some people who've speculated that maybe he was tired, but I saw Matthew Hurt exerting plenty of energy on defense, contesting shots and fighting for rebounds. He didn't look tired for me. It looked to me like the team wasn't all that interested in getting the ball to the guy who was having hit the best game of his career, arguably the best game of any player in the ACC in a single game this year. Yes, I said it. Matthew Hurt last night may have had the best game of any ACC player in any game this season. I haven't seen every game, obviously, but it's up there. And Duke didn't find him for the final four minutes of regulation and basically didn't find him in the overtime either. I want to get more in on these guards. And again, I, I, I hate calling him out by name, but Jordan Goldwire, season high four turnovers, most turnovers he had in a game in this, this year. Only the second time all year that he failed to make a single basket. He took three shots. Every single shot he took was a bad shot. I, like the moment he took it, I went, well, that was a terrible shot, including he had one one shot, I forget whether it was overtime or the end of regulation, where Duke had the ball, and I, I want to say we were down one. I mean, it's a key, key moment in the game, and he raced down and just, he took a running, you know, jumper. He was seven to ten feet outside the lane, contested. It had no prayer of going in. It was a terrible shot, and it was only the second time all year that Jordan Goldwire failed to get at least two steals. Like I said, his senior game, Worst game of his entire senior year. Jeremy Roach, I'll continue on this. Three points, one assist, three turnovers in 22 minutes. By the way, I didn't mention rebounds. Jeremy Roach, zero rebounds. Down the stretch, Jeremy Roach was in the game instead of Mark Williams. Coach K knows more about basketball than I do. But I don't understand why Jeremy Roach was in that game and Mark Williams wasn't. Because I'll tell you something. Plus minus, I hate plus minus, not a good stat. Jeremy Roach's plus minus was, was minus eight. He was atrocious on plus minus. Mark Williams was even. Mark Williams had one of the best plus minuses on the Duke team. But down the stretch, Coach K had Jeremy Roach in the game the entire time, did not have Mark Williams in the game. And there was a moment in the postgame press conference where the reporter for the Chronicle asked Coach K about the final free throw that Carlick Jones took where it was a tie ball game and, and Duke didn't have Mark Williams in the game to get the rebound. Louisville ended up getting the rebound. And so Louisville got a shot to win. Le they missed it luckily, but Duke essentially didn't get a shot at winning. Um, and the reporter said to him, Hey, why didn't you have Mark Williams in to help rebound? This was a game where Duke struggled rebounding the whole game on that free throw. And coach K's response was, if we have Mark Williams in the game, we can't press. And he's right about that. It, it makes it, you know, we, you want quicker guys on the floor, uh, when you're pressing. And he, Coach K said, I, I couldn't put Mark, Mark Williams in the game because we couldn't press. And uh, I, I was muted, and I'm not allowed to challenge Coach K like this, but hey, Coach, bullshit. That's not accurate. On a free throw, you could put Mark Williams in to get that free throw. There's no pressing on a free throw at that point. What a BS answer from Coach K to not tell the truth, which is that he trusts guys who aren't rebounding, and he doesn't trust the guys who are rebounding right now. And Duke didn't get that last rebound and didn't get a shot to win this game because we didn't rebound for shit in this game. Yes, I'm pissed off. And the last guy I'm going to talk about is DJ Stewart, who did nothing but take bad shots. He had two turnovers, but I swear to God, I saw him hand the ball to the Louisville team at least three times. Yes, I'm frustrated. Yes, I'm pissed off. DJ Stewart missed at least three wide-open three-pointers. He seemed gun-shy after that, passed up open threes. This was a game where the only way Duke loses when Matthew Hurts playing that well is for the rest of the guys to play like crap, and they played like crap. Our guards were terrible, and we don't have a good shot at the NCAA tournament now because they picked the wrong game to have their worst game. All three of them done. Woo. Jason. I don't know how to follow that. Uh, Jason, man. I'm nervous. That's, uh, here's the thing, though. Yes, I'm He's furious. Right. I'm furious. I'm furious because if any one of those three guards plays an average game, we win. Yeah, and Matthew you're right. Hurt play, with Matthew Hurt playing that well, we need one of our – Wendell Moore had an average game or a little maybe tiny bit above average. If one of our other significant offensive players, if one of those three guards, the guys who get most of the time, plays an average game, we win with Matthew Hurt playing that well. All three of them. Like I said, arguably all three of them had their worst game of the season at the same time. And, and our last home game against another tournament team, when we're on the bubble, that's how you don't make the tournament. Welcome to the NIT, Duke guards. I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about 
that part a little bit later, but I, I do want to start, I guess, react to everything you just said. I, I think everything you said is right. I think the issue for me was it was so frustrating that we had once again regressed back to our early season antics of having a really slow start. And I think other than Matthew Hurt, and I think you could throw Wendell Moore in this too. Like Wendell Moore had a slow start. Everyone but Matthew Hurt had a slow start. And again, the only thing that Matt Hurt was doing wrong was that his toe was like three centimeters longer yesterday than it has been in the previous four games because a lot of his threes ended up being twos because his foot was on the line. But I, I think when you see a guy that's so that hot and can literally hit anything contested, uncontested in the lane on in the perimeter, you give him the ball. You figure out a way to give him the ball. And like you said, Jason, in the last four minutes of, of regulation, most of overtime, they didn't give him the ball. And one thing I will note about Matthew Hurt and just about the team, right? The team was not cognizant of Matthew Hurt being in the game with four fouls. Because on the last part, when they're like, hey, we have Matthew Hurt in here because he's the guy who's been shooting the lights out other than, you know, he's the only guy on the team that's been shooting lights out today. On the press break, they put him in a position where he was the last guy back. And because he was the last guy back, when the ball cleared half court and there was two on one, he had to foul. And because of that, he fouled out of the game. And I'm not saying that that particular moment is something that cost us the game, but it's something you need to be cognizant of. If your best player is in the game with four fouls, you have to protect them. And you have to protect, you have to have someone else back there. And that may have been Mark, that maybe should have been Mark Williams. It could have been anybody else. Could have been Wendell Moore, whoever. But someone has to be back there so that Matthew Hurt doesn't have to get that fifth foul so that you still have a chance to win. Because as soon as he left the game with about, what, 15 seconds left, 17 seconds left in, in overtime, everyone in, everyone in, in, in Duke, wearing Duke blue was like, well, that's it. Because the only guy who's scoring points is now out of the game. And he, could, he knew it too. As soon as he fouled, he was like, why am I back here by myself? So you have to, be, you have to recognize that. And that is the young team. The young team showed up last night that we have lamented because the young team has showed up quite, you know, far too many times this season. The experienced team that we had the last four games before this was not present last night. And I don't know whether it was the layoff because remember they had played four games in 10 days and then they had a five day layoff where they kind of got to think about things and they kind of got to smell themselves a little bit, but I don't know if that's the reason, but the team that showed up on last night, they got off to a slow start. It was great that they were able to catch up in the second half, but they shouldn't have had to do that because every other game they've put teams away by the under four timeout in the first half. I think that is the key. We knew that a slow start has always crippled us, and we let it happen anyway. I want to talk a little bit about the defense last night, which I think had moments where it was really good, but there were a couple guys for Louisville that Duke just didn't seem able to stop, starting with Carlick Jones. And Donald, you're talking about how – you know, there are, there are like a couple, there are a couple ways I think to look at this loss. Jason put it in one way about a lot of the, you know, the, the, the two freshman guards, you know, just not playing well on offense and, and, and not finding either the right shooter or, or taking the right shots themselves or, or having their shots be off. Just, just Play, bad playing decision slow. making, playing slow, and playing. Yeah. I mean, way too much dribbling and, and indecisive. But on the defensive end, I think the challenge for Duke is that they were playing a team led by Carlick Jones, who, look, is not the fastest or biggest guy. He's only six foot one, but is very talented and is and is really good at creating separation for himself. I was thinking, I mean, this is not a fair comparison at all, but Carlick Jones is is a very small point guard. He's sort of like an Allen Iverson type where he can get the ball into a lot of creative spaces that are like spots where, you know, if Carlick Jones is up against Matthew Hurt 10 feet from the basket, he shouldn't be able to get a shot off because Matthew Hurt's got seven or eight inches on him and and a ton of reach. Like Matthew Hurt's got long arms and Carlick Jones shouldn't be able to score from the mid-range against Matthew Hurt, but repeatedly last night, not just against Hurt, who I think gave up a couple shots to Jones when there were switches, everybody was giving up shots to him and everybody was letting him get around and and closer to the basket so I think there were a lot of breakdowns as it pertained to Carlick Jones. The other guy for Louisville, who we talked about in the preview, who's been playing better, and, and another guy that Duke had a hard time stopping was Jalen Withers down low, who had had an immense game for Louisville, has clearly come on for them as a big man. And, and I want to see 
even more development from the big man rotation. That's not just Mark Williams. That's Jamin Brakefield and Henry Coleman. Coleman barely played last night. Brakefield had a, had a much less productive game, I think, than we've seen from him recently. And so all of those young guys, you know, not just the guards like Jason mentioned, but the big guys too, all of them need to be playing better for this team to reach its potential. I think Jason's right in, in saying that Duke is at this point not looking at getting into the NCAA tournament. I don't think that that's a total conclusion yet. I still think that Duke could, and you know, this depends on a lot of different factors and how other teams play and everything. But if Duke wins its last two regular season games and then gets at least one good win in the ACC tournament against another NCAA tournament bound team, that's potentially, I mean, UNC had a great win yesterday. So you beating UNC this week, UNC is a tournament team. Georgia Tech looks like a tournament team based on their performance the last couple of weeks. They've got a win over Florida State. I know we're going to talk about them. So Duke has opportunities, but that margin is getting slimmer and slimmer. And there's not there are not two losses left for Duke. There is one max, and it's got to be either you know coupled with an ACC tournament victory or late in the ACC tournament process. So the 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 chances for Duke are getting smaller. Yeah, and. Just to piggyback on your defense comment, I think the issue with this is that this wasn't a new team. We faced them a month ago, and we knew what this team was going it was capable of doing. We knew what Carly Jones was capable of doing with the pick and roll. We let it happen, and that's the more most frustrating thing. That was you know talk with my friends last night. That was the most frustrating part is that we've seen this team before. We knew what they can do. We knew how to combat it. We knew how to catch up, and we just you know, kind of let that go away in the first 10 minutes. And then basically down the stretch and into overtime, we kind of let that roll away too. So that is the key. And that's not a young thing. That's something where, you know, that's just doing homework. We did our homework. We knew exactly what we were facing entering this game. We previewed it on the last show. We just talked about, Hey, here's what we did wrong there. Here's what we need to fix. It, it is called making adjustments. And we didn't make any, and that's in, in coming out slow and flat and playing slow. Like we didn't have any urgency, those are things that we thought that we were over with over and done with. And it doesn't seem like we are, but Jason, I do want to go to you. One thing that also struck out was the rebounding and that we lost that rebounding battle by eight. What, I mean, in your mind, what went wrong there and talk about that and the physicality of just how this game was. Yeah. Physicality was a uh, big thing that coach K talked about in the post game press conference. He talked extensively about how physical Louisville was that they knocked us back and and that you know we weren't ready for to play at that level and and that has been a a theme that coach k has come back to again and again throughout this season in the post-game news conferences i've probably been on 90 percent of them and and uh, he continually talks about how this young team um you know struggles with physicality struggles with more mature teams and he's right but but i i gotta mention it ain't january anymore it's basically March. These kids have hundreds of minutes of ACC play under their belt at this point. They should know what to expect. They should be ready for a physical contest, especially against a team like Louisville. I mean, guys, if you think this game was physical, you're about to play Georgia Tech, which is basically all juniors and seniors. You're about to play Georgia Tech's men this week. After that, you're going to play North Carolina. That's just Big man after big man, 230-plus guy after 230-plus guy coming at you one after another after another. You thought Louisville was physical? Guys, It's uh, we've got to find a way to match the physicality and the strength of these other teams when they start leaning on us. And, and the boards, the rebounds, Donald, as you said, that's where it showed up. Phil, Louisville had about 30% more rebounds than we did. They grabbed 37% of their offensive rebounding you know, opportunities. If, if there was a missed shot on offense for them, they had a 37% chance of, drab- of grabbing that rebound. That's, that's big. We didn't have a single offensive rebound in the first half. I'd like to repeat that stat. Duke had zero offensive rebounds in the first half. You think you'd, Not great. You, you think you'd luck into one, right? <laughs> you'd think, you know, hey, you missed a three. There was a long rebound and it happened to fall into some guy's hands. Or, you know, some Louisville guy, the ball came off a little funky. It hit his hands wrong and we ended up getting it. Zero. Or like a, or like a team rebound where it yeah. falls out of bounds. <laughs> I mean, something. You'd think we'd just luck our way into run one. Nope. Zero offensive rebounds in the first half. And it's not like we had a bunch in the second half either. Jeremy Roach played 22 minutes, didn't grab a single rebound. I know he's a guard, but. You know what, buddy? Get in there, get one every now and then. Jamin Brakefield plays 13 minutes, gets one rebound. 
one rebound. And when Jamin Breakfield's in the game these days, he's playing big man. He's playing center. And for him to have one rebound in 13 minutes, Jordan Goldwire, 35 minutes, two rebounds. We needed help. It had to be more than just Wendell Moore, Matthew Hurt, and occasionally Mark Williams getting rebounds. And, and no one else was helping out. And, and rebounds made a really, really big difference in this game. When Louisville get, when a team gets more than 30% more rebounds than you do, and you only shoot less than 20% from three. We haven't mentioned that, by the way. <laughs> in, our, in our bad, Duke shot less than 20% from three. If they out-rebound you by a ton and you can't hit three-pointers, you ain't going to win. At this point, I mean, the one thing I'll take away from this game as we leave it is, is gut check time. We have two huge games this week. We will start by previewing the Georgia Tech game. At first, we will leave it and take a quick break. Again, on the other side, a must-win game on Tuesday. We'll preview that. We'll also take a look at some teams and how they may make the NCAA tournament if they don't get in. Stick around. Okay, gentlemen, we are back, and it is time to preview the upcoming game on Tuesday against the Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets. I'm going to start by reviewing the record that Georgia Tech has. They are 13-8, and 9-6 and six in the ACC, and of course, we last played them on January 26th. We beat them, but since we last played them, they are 6-3. and three. They have won, however, the last four in a row. They lost to Louisville by 16, UVA by eight, and Clemson by two in the last in the ACC. But they have also defeated Florida State, Notre Dame in their last four wins, Pitt, Miami, Virginia Tech, and Syracuse. So they've allowed a lot of threes in their uh, in their losses, as I'm sure Jason will talk about in a little bit. But when we played them last time, we won by getting to the free throw line and making free throws. We were 18 for 22 in that game from the line what Tech was four or five. And in the game where both teams shot 50% from two and around 30%, 31% from three, the free throws made the difference. So we got to be aggressive, but we also have to remain in control. We have to get to the line, but that doesn't mean a thing if we can't concentrate and knock down the foul shots. We did that last night, but I feel like we didn't play in control throughout a lot of the game. So we have to make sure we maintain that poise, get back to what we were doing you know, the previous two weeks before last night and stick to our basics and get back to playing the Duke basketball that we were enjoying these last couple of weeks. Jason, I know you have the advanced stats around Georgia tech. Talk about what you see in this yellow jacket team and what we will be able to see on the court on Tuesday. So like you said, uh, winners of four straight, um, uh, they, they started their year, by the way, with, two horrible losses to Georgia State and Mercer. Both those games were at home. Since then, they have not lost a single home game. Um, th- so this is a team that is really – it's playing great ball at home. Um, they are uh, overall number 32 in Ken Palm, which means they are higher rated than Duke in Ken Palm right now. This is a team that's really risen up in the efficiency rankings in recent weeks as they've been playing better and better. Uh, it's not just that they've been winning games. For the most part, they've been winning those games fairly easily. Uh, which is a great way to get your efficiency rankings way up there. Uh, They have the 18th best offense in the country, which is very impressive. And and this is a team in terms of advanced stats. They are great at ball protection and steals. They're fourth, the fourth best team in the nation at stealing the ball. Almost 13% of your offensive possessions end with Georgia tech racing the other direction after getting a steal. That's a huge number. And they lead the conference, best team in the ACC, at not giving up steals. So it's hard to take the ball away from them, and they take the ball away from you a lot. They're just you know, really efficient in that regard. They're also really efficient in terms of their shooting. Third best three-point shooting team in the ACC. Second best two-point shooting team in the ACC. They, they, you know, as Donald mentioned you know, in, our, in our first game, they don't do a good job of getting to the free throw line, and they don't shoot a lot of three-pointers. Um, but their half-court offense, you know, it's mostly pick and roll. It's dumping it into Moses Wright. Um, they, they just run things really efficiently. It, it's not surprising they do that because they are the fourth most experienced team in Division One. They've basically got seven guys who play significant minutes for them. 
Those seven guys are four seniors, two juniors, and a sophomore. And that sophomore is the one who plays the least of those seven minutes. You know, the guys who play 20 plus minutes a game are all juniors and seniors. So, you know, this is a team that understands the physicality of the ACC. They understand what you need to do to score in the ACC. They understand the way to defend in the ACC. They know this is their year. You know, these guys have been in the program for several years. Um, and if, you know, they, they haven't made an NCAA tournament, they, they, this is their year to make an NCAA tournament. And, and like Donald said, you know, in terms of what works, how you beat them, get to the free throw line if you can. Uh, last game, we also crushed them on the boards. Um, we, we beat them 43 to 28 on, on, on rebounds last game. That's going to be important for Duke. And the other thing that works against them is shooting three-pointers. Uh, Georgia Tech has given up nearly 37% on three-point shots this game this season. Uh, and and Duke will need to get back to being a good three-point shooting team to, to have a chance, I think, to win the game against them. Yeah, that was a good point about the rebounding. I forgot about that stat, but that is definitely going to be important, particularly given the last couple of games. We haven't really been rebounding all that well, uh, and it came back to bite us last night. So, uh, Sam, I'll go to you. You have the players to watch. Tell us which players have been hot lately for Georgia Tech that we need to keep an eye on on Tuesday. So I'll take us back to the first game that Duke played against Georgia Tech. Jose Alvarado is the senior point guard for this team, and he led the way for them last time, obviously in a losing effort, but was still very effective for them. Uh, scored, I think, 26 points and dished five assists. He did turn the ball over three times. So this is where I want to start with one of the keys for Duke. Alvarado, very good experienced player does turn the ball over a little bit. So look for Jordan Goldwire, Wendell Moore, all those guys to be trying to force turnovers. Jason mentioned that they're not a great three-point shooting team. So this is a team that relies on the ball getting downhill and, and into the lane for them to score, try to get the ball out, pop the ball out when, when it's on the perimeter, force the break against Georgia Tech. This is not a team that plays super fast. So if Duke can speed them up a little bit, I think that gets them out of their comfort zone. That's the, the first place that, that's sort of player related. Get the ball out of Jose Alvarado's hands, cough the ball up ideally, and score easy baskets against them. I think that's the first thing for Duke. The other guy for Georgia Tech that's been playing better and, and has been one of their stars this year, but, but certainly better of late is Moses Wright. He's had a double-double in five of Georgia Tech's last 10 games, including the game against Duke, where I think he went for like 13 and 12 or so. Moses Wright has been a beast. He's a, he's a uh, senior forward and also from the triangle. So I'm sure he's one of these guys that gets excited to be playing all the teams from the triangle when he gets that chance. That's another guy that, that Duke needs to, I, I don't know if they're going to stop him, but, when we talk about the rebounding battle, Moses Wright is where to start. I think that, again, one of the keys for Duke is the recent emergence of Mark Williams, who has played, we know, very well of late. And if he can, and he wasn't as much of a factor a month ago when Duke played Georgia Tech. Jalen Johnson, of course, was still in the rotation for Duke and does not have the defensive chops I think that Mark Williams has so hopefully the emergence of Mark Williams and his ability to play 25 minutes in this game will be a buffer against Georgia Tech and and I, I think to this point they have a better resume than Duke they've got better like good wins and not as much of the the bad losses that the Duke has which is not to say that when you look at the metrics they're actually fairly evenly matched and this should be a good game I'm hoping that Duke can pull this one out. I actually think that, that Duke's development the last few weeks, yesterday's game notwithstanding, would tell me that Duke is now a better team than Georgia Tech. Although the you know Ken Palm's going to tell you and, and ESPN's BPI is going to tell you that, that this game is somewhat evenly matched. Maybe Georgia Tech is a is a point or two favored in this one. But I think that that Duke is is more talented than this Georgia Tech team, and if they are able to recover and learn from Saturday's you know, down the stretch disaster against Louisville, that this is a game that Duke can and, and hopefully will win. So what you say, Sam, uh, is, is probably the correct way of phrasing these kind of things, you know, Oh, it's really even. And uh, maybe Duke's a little bit better, that kind of thing. Moses Wright in the post-game news conference yesterday for Georgia tech, after they beat Syracuse was asked about playing Duke and he wasn't quite as, even tempered, so to speak, as you are. Moses oh, Wright. What did oh, he yeah. say? <laughs> Moses Wright said, We know we're better than Duke. We're not at all worried about that game. <sighs> hey, Moses. Yikes. Bulletin hey. board material. He, he spoke those words. He said, We know we're better than Duke. 
that you know that's a statement i i hope that duke i hope the duke sports information department or whoever it is that takes you know that pays attention to other teams statements makes the duke team aware of that statement from moses right because he was unequivocal they're all over it he i was promise very they're confident. all over it look <laughs> look you know how the saying goes speak of the devils and they shall appear uh and let's hope that duke blue devils that they show up down in Atlanta on Tuesday night. Because again, if we look at Lunardi's bracketology from late last night, the most up-to-date one we have, Georgia Tech is on that last four in line and Duke is in that first four out line. This is a must-win game. If we want to flip that or, or even move slowly up, we need to make sure that this game is a solid victory. So, you know, Moses Wright, if you want to say that you're a lot better, Show me, show me, show me that's the case. Just like, just like Bayheim tried to show us, it didn't really work out. Let's see what happens on Tuesday night. So Georgia Tech, by the way, has not lost a single ACC game at home. Um, they're a better team at home than they are on the road. And there will be fans in attendance for this game. Uh, I expect, even though it won't be, you know, capacity, anything close to that, there's, you know, a limit on the number of people who will be there. I expect it'll be reasonably rowdy. Um, it, Georgia Tech is looking at this game as as the cap on their NCAA bid. Uh, my, Georgia Tech, in my opinion, probably believes if they win this game, they're all done and and they are in the NCAA tournament. And as I mentioned, you know, these guys are mostly seniors and a couple juniors. This has been what they've been working for for a long time. Josh Passner, if he doesn't make the NCAA tournament this year, I, I'm not sure when he's going to because they don't have a, a good young core, you know, in the background. There aren't any freshmen who are going to rise up for Georgia Tech at the moment. Doesn't look like so. So it's it's a huge, huge game for them. And uh, I, I, you know, Duke's going to have to match a really intense team that has not lost at home all year to an ACC team. So uh, you're right. It's it's probably a must win. If they if Duke doesn't win against Georgia Tech, they probably need a you know a really good effort against UNC and then a deep run in the NCAA tournament. Um, otherwise, we're going to be one of the teams missing the dance. And speaking of the dance, the NCAA tournament is less than three weeks away. And this past week, the NCAA announced its contingency plans for teams that are forced to withdraw from the tournament before or after Selection Sunday due to COVID-related issues. I want to talk about the key points, and then, guys, I'll bring you in to tack on what I left out. So once the bracket is finalized on Selection Sunday... There will be no reseeding. And if a team needs to be replaced in the bracket, if they don't do, I believe it's seven consecutive days of negative tests, the replacement team slides into that team spot. So if the sixth seed in one of these regions has to withdraw, the replacement team is now the sixth seed and they would play the 11th seed in that bracket. The first four out, the, la- the, the first four out designated teams, they're going to designate who those four teams are. And those are the four teams that are designated as replacement teams if they choose to do it. Of course, a team can say, hey, we're not in the NCAA tournament. We're not going to back in. But those four teams are the four teams that can elect to be designated as replacement teams. Now, replacement teams, mind you, are only available to be inserted into the bracket up to 48 hours after Selection Sunday. After that, replacement teams can't get into the NCAA tournament. And finally... Should an automatic qualifier be unable to participate in the first game of the NCAA tournament, the conference that that team plays in will get to pick the replacement team to re- to fill that automatic qualifier spot. It's based on a bunch of different designations. I believe that this weekend they had to submit to the NCAA what those contingencies would be for their conference should their automatic qualifier not be able to play in the NCAA tournament. So we know who... Uh, from each conference, we would know very soon who those teams would be should they not uh, should their automatic qualifier not be filled. So, a lot to digest. Uh, Sam, I want to start with you. Um, what are your thoughts on the NCAA's plan? And feel free to throw out any other nuggets about this plan that I failed to cover. It's <laughs> it's weird, right? That <laughs> they are having to to put all these like addenda in place and have teams that are not going to have their names called on selection Sunday still have to be preparing as if right. Like the, the, the top teams that are in the NIT and Duke very well, maybe one of them. So this is, this is like absolutely something that is, that is pertinent to Duke fans. Cause we're, we're right on the, on the edge of the bubble right there. 
Duke is going to, let's say Duke gets the number one or number two seed in the NIT at this point, completely a reasonable place for Duke to end up given its record. Duke would have to be preparing for its first round NIT game, which would be, I don't know if they're going to play the NIT games in uh, at, at local sites they're, the way they normally do, or they're no, moving no, the whole thing to another location. They're, they're doing the whole thing in, in New York, I believe. Whole thing in New York. So Duke is going to be Duke is going to be preparing for a game in the NIT starting on that Sunday night, but might get a call Monday or Tuesday that their game is that. Oh, just kidding! They're in the NCAA tournament, so it's going to create a lot of stress and anxiety for all of these coaches and these players who are just dealing with additional uncertainty in a year when uncertainty is the norm, and that's frustrating. I think the other tough thing about it, and, and we talked about this. I don't know how long ago we talked about this, but when the NCAA said that they were insisting on continuing to have the tournament in basically the same time frame that they do every year, which is conference tournaments end the second weekend in March or uh, this year is the second weekend in March. And then they're going to start the NCAA tournament like four or five days after that. It's just not enough time given the, the logistics of the pandemic to guarantee that everyone is, is sort of safe and ready to go when they enter the pseudo bubble that they're going to have for the tournament. So my overall take on this is it's still a miss. And, and the NCAA in all of these caveats and, and potential like last minute changes is admitting that they're kind of flubbing the execution here and not just, you know, pushing the tournament back a week or, or coming up with a way to space out the beginning of the tournament from the end of the, the rest of the season that, in a way that makes all the teams kind of feel comfortable that they're ready to go. They're preparing for the right things. And it's going to add a lot of unnecessary stress to the teams, to, to all of these teams and the teams who are potentially going to be added in as replacements, not to mention all the weirdness that it creates in the bracket. If, if teams have to get slotted into these, into these new spots, which, I mean, we can't even, we can't even get too deep on that because who knows what's going to happen there. And pushing the tournament back. I know we had talked about, uh, that it runs up on Masters weekend, but what better lead-in for the NCAA tournament than watching the Masters all Saturday? And CBS can have the Masters on all day Saturday, leading into that first game. But because, but they're not doing that. They're they're keeping the schedule as is. And so this, the whole thing that gets me about this is the seven-day uh, minimum, the the requirement that they each team has seven consecutive days where everybody on the team tests negative. That means that they have to get, they have to hope that they get through the conference tournament unscathed because there's no way if they catch something during the tournament that, or during the ACE, during the conference tournaments, that they'll be ready in time for the NCAA tournament because those are occurring less than seven days before this is all finalized. So that's the thing that's kind of interesting. Of course, there's some conferences that would be in a position they're doing their tournaments this weekend, this coming weekend. Uh, but for the, the big conferences, like especially these teams that are on the bubble, like Duke or Georgia Tech, they have to hope that no one else at the ACC tournament is is catching something and bringing it to the tournament because if they do, the entire conference is in trouble. So that's that's a really d- difficult thing to kind of navigate. Uh, Jason, tell me, what do you think about this? Is this something that you think is good, bad, or just meh? I mean, I'm not going to judge it good or bad. I think it's the NCAA trying to figure out how they can make things work during COVID times. Uh, and, and I've got a number of comments about it. The, the first one is I don't quite understand. Actually, I shouldn't say I don't understand. I, I do understand why they've got this 48-hour window when teams could be knocked out of the tournament. I, I think it doesn't necessarily make sense. Um, I, in my opinion, up until you play your first game, if for some reason you are COVIDed out, if your team is eliminated because there's too much COVID on your team, which there's a healthy percentage of, of basketball right now, of Division One basketball that is not playing games because there's too much COVID on their teams. If that happens to you, I think up until your first game, then they should be able to find a replacement for you. We, we, we should start by having every team in the tournament play a game. <laughs> Seems crazy, I know. But, uh, but it, it's entirely possible based on this window that they've created. And, and again, to repeat what Donald said, the field gets announced at 6 p.m. on Sunday. If a team is COVIDed out before 6 p.m. on Tuesday, 48 hours later, they will be replaced. If it happens after that, they just go away. That team no longer exists in the field, and the team they're going to play gets a walkover. Now, I said I know the reason why the NCAA did this. They did this because they want to preserve those brackets, those little pieces of paper. 
that all of us take and print out and fill in the names and all that other kind of stuff. The NCAA feels, you know, that's such a part. If you think about it, the NCAA tournament is the schedule, so to speak, that people study more than any other schedule around. There's no other time that people look and go, okay, if I win and he wins, we play. The, I mean, like there's, you know, there's a matrix to it that, that doesn't exist. And people don't really think about that much in the NFL playoffs, the major league baseball playoffs or, or NBA, anything like that. College basketball is the one place where you're looking, Oh, three, four games down the road. And, and what are the implications of, of nine different other games happening? Um, which, which is part of the glory of it. And the NCAA really wants to preserve that uh, during these crazy COVID times. So uh, th let me, that's the reason why they're doing this. Let me explain now a few of the things about it that I think are crazy. Great. Real yeah, quick. Ahead, Real quick, I think that doesn't make any sense either, at least from, from my perspective, because you're talking about the brackets. That part makes sense. But when are we all doing brackets? We're doing it up until 11.45 a.m. on Thursday or whenever that this today will be this year will be Friday. We're literally doing I mean, you'll have the first four on Thursday and literally people after that second, those first four are determined. People are scouring over all these things because we have a situation already built into the tournament where we find out 24 hours before less than 24 hours before the big dance starts that we have four new teams. So we have that already in the in the thing so i don't know why they're making it preserving brackets by doing this earlier because we already have a mechanism set up in within the tournament where we don't find out teams until less than 24 hours before the whole thing starts well I, to be clear i think the ncaa is it has taken the wrong tack in this regard i think they've made a mistake i think they think oh we you know by tuesday people will finalize and then they'll fill out their brackets i think people would understand and would adjust if they needed to, you know, on Wednesday or even potentially on Thursday for a team that was playing on Friday. But, you know, they had to pick a, a, a time by what you look, you can't, you can't have the team come in an hour before the game. So they had to pick a time to say, this is the cutoff. They picked it as Tuesday. I think it's a foolish time. I don't think it makes a lot of sense. So that's item number one about the not make sense. The other item that doesn't make sense is the fact that you're not going to reseed the, the field. Um, and, and you don't have to reseed the whole, whole field, but you could reseed a region. If let's take an example, if Gonzaga, the number one team, the best team in the country, the only undefeated team left, uh, if Gonzaga for some reason had to leave the field because of COVID, they'd be replaced by the number 69 team. Why would you put the number 69 team into the number one slot? The easy thing to do, which wouldn't screw up the bracket too much, would be you take the region, let's say, you know, Gonzaga's in, we're going to call it the West region. These regions aren't named like that, but let's call it the West region. Just take the number two seed there and make them the number one, take the number three, make them the number two and so on. And then plug in that replacement team, you know, around the 11 or 12, wherever they fall in the, in that, in that region. That's what makes sense to me. I don't know, you know, but if that number one seed goes away and like you're the number four seed in that bracket, why do you suddenly get an easier path to the final four? than the number two and three seeds in that bracket. Does that make sense? You see what I'm saying? Like the number four seed mm -hmm. suddenly doesn't have a great team, you know, that they're facing in the sweet 16, whereas the number two and threes are playing each other. It makes no sense to me. So I think, I think that part is because I, and I can kind of see this aspect of things. I think the NCAA is like, if one team has to be withdrawn, why affect 16 because of it? Because the, the way you're saying that it would be, 16 teams would have a new opponent instead of just one. And I think that's the issue, but I do agree with you that like if Gonzaga or, or Michigan or, you know, even Ohio state, if they're in one seed, if they had to withdraw, then you don't stick in, you know, St. Louis and say, St. Louis, you're the number one seed. Now you're the overall number one seed, by the way, like that doesn't make any sense either. This is just pointing out that this whole endeavor is something of a farce and that we shouldn't be, doing it probably this or like if we should be doing it then they should be doing it in a way that is logistically feasible and not a situation like we're gonna we're gonna get the bracket on sunday night and then everyone's gonna be mining for information on monday about which teams are gonna be you know are, are having positive tests or having scares or whatever like it's gonna be a total mess and you're not actually gonna be able to finish filling out your bracket until like the day before the tournament and i'm somebody that likes to just get it get it done and get it in so it's completely messing with my uh, personal way of, of filling out the bracket which of course i'm angry about yes and, well and the last thing i'll mention about all this is and donald this gets to something you were talking about regarding the masters and the tournament schedule and the such 
they have not finalized the what they're they haven't said they've specifically said that they haven't said what they're going to do about the final four if there's COVID at the final four because I I think they have to have the final four in the championship game they can't go oh we're gonna you know oh this team got COVID so we're only playing one final four game and and the other team team just gets to go to the to the championship no way they can't have that happen so I, I think you know, at some point in the next week or two, they will announce some system where once a team is slotted to, to be in the final four, if they have to wait, they will wait for that team to be ready to play. I don't think that they'll allow someone to replace them, but I think that they will say, if we have to wait, we will wait. And it, you know, ideally that means maybe waiting a few days, you know, Donald, your scenario, maybe we wait a few days rather than playing at the weekend before the masters, we play at the weekend of the masters. Uh, but I think if necessary, I think the NCAA is going to say, if we have to wait three weeks to get these four final four teams all healthy at the same time, that's what we will do uh, because they've got to play those final four games and that championship game. You can't have a walk. I can't wait point. to hear from the one team, like the coach of the one team that is healthy. Like, let's say it's, let's say it's Michigan and Gonzaga in the national championship game and Gonzaga gets COVID like they did earlier this year and Michigan is fine. I can't wait to hear what Jawan Howard has to say. Like my guys are ready to go. We've done everything we can. Now you're telling me I have to, you know, put them on ice for three weeks and, and wait this out. That is going to be a mess if it happens. But oh, yeah, that's where we are. And, and, and that's, this is what they're asking for. And the other piece of it is the NCAA says you can play with as few as five players. Like you can't, you know, you can play with, with five, which would be insane. But uh, you know that some team's going to have like a really good player who, you know, if it's at the final four, some team has a really good player who, who gets COVID they're going to go, Oh, you know, sorry. Lots of our guys have been exposed to him. We can't, everyone play. else is under protocol. Everybody <laughs> else is under protocol. Right. That's what they're going to try and say because they don't, you know, Corey Kispert can't play for Gonzaga. Oh, sorry. He's been hanging out with the entire team. They're not going to try and play without, without, you know, Jalen Scruggs or something like that. Uh, It's a crazy situation. I think the NCAA made some mistakes here in in how they're doing it. But on the other hand, I think no matter what they came up with, we would say there were mistakes. There's, There's no perfect answer. At least I haven't heard one. Okay, we will see what happens with all that. It's almost March 1st. March Madness is about to happen. But before we get to March, let's do Player of the Week. And, you know, there's two games that we could talk about. Jason, I go to you. Who do you have for player of the week? I think it's like my third week in a row with Matthew Hurt, but I'm going Matthew Hurt. I don't, I don't know how. Look, last week I got mad at Sam for not picking Matthew Hurt. Dude put up 37. I mean, look, against Syracuse, he had only 15, but he had five rebounds, five assists, and three block shots. But, I mean, 37 against Louisville? I don't know how there's anybody but Matthew Hurt. I believe I called Matthew Hurt's performance against Syracuse pedestrian by his standards or, or something like that. And then against Louisville, he was, he was far and away the most effective player. I'm not making this mistake again. Matthew Hurt is, is Duke's all ACC guy. He's Duke's, you know, if Duke was, was good enough to get an all American this year, it would be Matthew Hurt. It was Matthew Hurt this week, player of the week for me. Matthew Hurt was player of the week just off of last night. Simple as that three for three Matthew Hurt, our player of the week. Uh, that that yeah, was wait, 37 that was points. Simple. 37 points. He had a whole week in one game. <laughs> yeah, basically. Basically. So we will see what happens. We will leave it there. That will do it for episode 287 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. We will be back after the Georgia Tech game happens at some point. But for now, subscribe, rate, and review and tell your friends we are in the thick of things now. Every game matters. It's been it's been mattering all 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 season, but now we're, you know, tomorrow is March madness. We are in the thick of things. So keep it locked. We will recap the news as it comes our way. So for Sam Klein and Jason Evans, I am Donald wine. And now it is time for the Duke band. to Take us home. Anybody want a sweet tart? Dude, wait, hold on. Do you know sweet tarts are like my go-to? Really? Love sweet tarts. Yes. Just pour them in my hand right here. Yeah, I got you. (laughs) Do, Do you ever eat sweet tarts with popcorn?
Uh, no, but that sounds great. Oh, yeah. You pop a sweet tart in your mouth, get it so it's, you know, crumbling a little bit. Like I like them best when they're not too hard, when they're crumbling just a little tiny bit. Mm-hmm. And and then you pop some popcorn in there. You get that kind of... It, it, the, and you're the, the movie sweet. guy, so, yes. so this is real... Oh. Oh, this is this is something that happens way too much. One of the reasons I've lost weight during COVID is that I'm eating way, way less popcorn and sweet tarts. <laughs>